So can you believe we are wrapping up our series today? We have gone through this amazing book, the book, book of Deuteronomy. You are now in the small percentage of Christians who could say you've actually studied this book, which is something to brag about, I'm sure. But I trust your life has been richer as we have gone through this book. So to, just to summarize a little bit, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. It's the final book of what is known as the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. And the Pentateuch is found in all three of the holy books of the three major monotheistic religions. So it appears in the Muslim Quran, the Jewish Torah, and of course our Christian Bible. These books are foundational for most people living in the world. This is the most important book in the Old Testament in terms of giving us a clear idea about the character of God and what God asks of us. J. Gordon McConville calls it one of the great theological documents of the Bible or of any time. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke says, Deuteronomy has had greater consequences for human history than any other single book. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Bible. Study and meditation of Deuteronomy shape Jesus' worldview. Jesus used Deuteronomy when battling Satan in the wilderness. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy. So this morning, I want to look at four major themes in Deuteronomy and show how they point us toward Jesus and towards the gospel. We're going to look at exchange, grace, deep change, and future hope. Exchange, grace, deep change, and future hope. Let's start with exchange. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor West preached out of uh, chapter Deuteronomy 28, which has this amazing, these amazing verses, the beginning of Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket, your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And further down in the same chapter, in verse 15, it says that the opposite takes place for disobedience, that they will be cursed. And there's this stunning description of the ultimate destiny of perpetual disobedience. This is in chapter 28, starting in verse 64. The Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you'll find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both night and day, never sure of your life. And I was, as I was reading that, I was like, that's describing our culture. That's describing contemporary North America. Ours is a culture that worships many gods, gods of materialism, gods of progress, gods of scientific naturalism, gods of wokeism, gods of Christian nationalism. And because we reject the true and living God, ours is a culture that can find no repose. It can find no rest. Rather, we are a culture marked by anxiety and depression and longing. 
Think of how accurately verse 66 captures how many people are living today. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both day and night, never sure of your life. Terrified thoughts, damaged emotions, trauma. Ours is a culture in crisis. And what is the remedy to our dilemma? It says here in the text, fully obey the Lord, follow all his commands. And I look at that and I cry out, Lord, I am hopeless. I can't do what it is you're telling me to do. I can't fully obey you. I struggle to follow your commands. I look at my heart and I see selfishness and I see envy and I see all kinds of evil and I despair. And into this narrative of despair, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes as a disrupting force. Galatians 3, 10 to 14. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So what is happening here is that on the cross, this great exchange takes place. Jesus gives us the blessings of the covenant by taking the curses of the covenant in our place. He doesn't just take the curses, he becomes the curse. You know, if any human being deserved all the blessings described in Deuteronomy, it was Jesus. He was the only one who fully obeyed the law. But instead, he got the curses so that we might get the blessings. So my prayer this morning is that you understand that you are not saved by your own morality. You are not saved by church attendance. You are not saved by being a good person. You were saved because 2,000 years ago, the only perfect human being who ever lived allowed spikes to be driven through his hands and feet. You were saved because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ hung on a cross and he absorbed all the sin of the world into himself. And when he died, the curses you and I deserve died with him. And when he rose up from the dead, the blessings were transferred onto us. That is salvation. That is the gospel. So a great exchange takes place. Secondly, Deuteronomy teaches us about grace. If you do even a cursory study of the nation of Israel in the Bible, you'll see that there was nothing morally superior about them, that they fail over and over again, and their leaders failed over and over again. Deuteronomy 7, 7-8, Moses writes, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is telling them, I didn't choose you because you were the most powerful. You were actually weak. I didn't choose you because you were the wealthiest. You were actually poor. 
I didn't choose you because you were the biggest. You were actually quite small. What God is saying to them is, I love you because I love you because I love you. Think of it in terms of romantic love. If a wife asks her husband, do you love me? And he answers, well, I love that you're a good cook. I love that you agree on what we should watch on Netflix together. That works good for me. I love that you bring in a little extra dough into our income, into our household. So that's not love. There's something else going on there that we got to unpack. But any love that is contingent on something external to the object is not love. Any love that is contingent on something external to the object is not love. It's conditional love. The correct response, do you love me? Yes, I love you because of you. That statement stands alone with no qualifiers. I love you full stop. And that is the love that God has for you. God loves you. God chooses you, not because of anything intrinsic within you. He loves you because he created you in love. You know, if you look at the creation narrative in Genesis, every time God creates something, there's a pause, and then it says God saw that it was good. He created the heavens. He saw it was good. He created the earth. He saw it was good. Listen, God created you, and that means when he created you, when you were born, God saw that this is a good day. This was a good day. The day you were born was a good day for God. Because when you were born, God said, this world is a better, better place because you are in it. Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I was present at the birth of all three of my children. James, our youngest, who's here this morning, had the most exciting entry into the world. He was delivered by firefighters at the entryway of our home in Vancouver. I'm sure he'd love to tell you all about it, but sorry, buddy. Uh, I was at the birth of all three of my children, and as I saw each of my kids for the first time, there was this explosion of love in my heart. I loved each of my kids from the moment I I saw them. And guess what? They hadn't done anything for me. And for a long time, they did nothing for me. They took from us. They took, I took, I took. I was going to say they still don't do nothing, but they're teenagers now, so they do do a little bit around here. My love was not contingent on what they could or couldn't do. My love existed because they existed. And this is rather a flimsy picture of how God the Father views you. He loves you because you exist. He looks at you and he loves you. And this is a hard thing to actually get our minds around because it's because of the fact that we live in a culture that has the exact opposite metrics for love and acceptance than God does. Because our culture says, you are not worth anything unless you are pretty. You are not worth anything unless you are rich. You are not worth anything unless you are successful. We live in a world that does not know what unconditional love is. And so there's this constant pressure being exerted onto us to achieve, to prove, to justify ourselves. 
And that's why it's so important to immerse ourselves into the gospel, to immerse yourself in the word of God, to meditate on God's love until, until what I've been saying this morning, until this just comes alive inside of you, that God loves you for you, not for what you can do for him. The concept that God loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. The concept of grace. And then deep change is the third point. Deuteronomy and the gospel points us towards the only hope for deep change. We come into the world as broken people. We start off as broken children born into broken families. And we continue to grow up broken and most of life is trying to tend to our wounds and deficits that we've caused ourselves or that others have done to us. We are in a state of perpetual recovery. And at the depth of our beings, we know we need to change. We know that our natural state is not right. Moses shows us our brokenness and he shows us that we cannot change or save ourselves. You know, God used Moses to bring us the law. And the law is, if we measure by the law, we see that we've all failed and we're all broken. In Exodus 31, verse 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. The law was inscribed on tablets of stone for Israel to follow. But you and I know that we need something more in order to obey and to do the right thing. We need a lawgiver who can write on the tablets of our heart. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.3, The Spirit of the living God writes not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. This is how great the gospel is. We are not just told what to do or how to live. Any religion or belief structure can tell people what to do, can tell you how to live your life. But it's only in Christianity, it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are given the power to live the way that we ought to live. If we look at the commands we're given, uh, the gospel gives us the power to live them out. It's the gospel that provides the deep, deep change that we need in order to live the way God has called us to live. Law written on tablets of stone can, can tell us what to do and they can kind of exert external pressure on us. But the gospel comes into our very being. It comes inside of us. And now there's something inside of us, something internal that makes us obey and do what God calls us to do. Moses was a lawgiver, but we see now that Jesus was the ultimate lawgiver because he had the power to write the law right onto our hearts. Finally, future hope. You know, we look back on Moses as one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived, this, this pivotal figure in all three monotheistic faiths, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy ends with these verses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds 
that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Jewish writer Eli Wiesel comments, the immensity of his task, the scope of his experience, command our admiration, our reverence, our awe. Moses, the man who changed the course of history, his emergence became the decisive turning point. After him, nothing was the same again. It's not surprising he occupies a special place in the Jewish tradition. His passion for social justice, his struggle for national liberation, his triumphs, his disappointments, his poetic inspiration, his gifts as a strategist, his organizational genius, his complex relationship with God and his people, his requirements and promises, his condemnations and blessings, his efforts to reconcile the law with compassion, authority with integrity. No individual ever, anywhere, accomplished so much for so many people in so many different domains. His influence is boundless. It reverberates beyond time. And yet, this mighty man of power, this prophet of God, this great leader, failed. He was not perfect. The height of his failure came in Numbers chapter 20, verses 6 to 12. It's a crisis moment in the nation of Israel. They're, they're in a drought experience. People are going to die. And this is what happens. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Now listen to this. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. Moses failed to give God glory. God says, speak to the rock and water will come out. Instead, Moses has a temper tantrum and yells at everyone and then says these words that seal his fate. Must we bring you water out of the rock? Uh, Moses, you're going to bring water out of the rock? What happened to that God of signs and wonders who's done all this stuff for this nation so far? And all of a sudden, you're saying you're going to do the miraculous? And then this is the consequence of that. This is how the life of Moses ends. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. Moses saw the promised land, but he died because of his disobedience. He did not enter it. 
Fast forward, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on a mountain called Mount Tabor. And on this mountain, Jesus meets Elijah and Moses and talks with them. Now listen to this. Mount Tabor is in the promised land. When Moses climbed up Mount Nebo, which I just read, he would have seen Mount Tabor. So what this means is that Moses is in the promised land. Not only is he in the promised land, he is talking with the Son of God. He's talking to the transfigured Jesus. Contrast this to when he spoke to God in Exodus 19. Thunder, lightning, thick clouds, a trumpet goes off for some reason. Everyone's freaking out. The mountain's covered in smoke. God descends in fire. The whole mountain is shaking. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And God warns Moses, don't let anyone try to see me because my holiness will consume their sinfulness. And Moses is like, no problems. Everyone's scared down here. Moses' encounters with God were in a cleft of a rock. He had to hide. It was a burning bush. It was a dense cloud. And now not only is he in the promised land, but he's speaking with God incarnate in Jesus. Moses' entire life trajectory was to lead the people to the promised land. And he never got it. Never got it. His dream was never realized. There's this type of melancholy at the end of Deuteronomy as he's allowed to see the land, the land he'll never set foot in. But don't you see now that God is a God of grace and that God not only allows Moses to enter the promised land, but he allows to do it in the presence of Jesus. And that's how I want to end our series on Deuteronomy with this future hope. Because we all have dreams and we all have visions about our future, about what we want to happen in our life. And, and we will all face regrets and disappointments. But in the coming kingdom of God, all of our dreams will be realized. Our future hope is found in Revelation 7. Revelation 7 paints this beautiful picture of heavenly worship. Actually, I'll invite the worship team up as I close up. Revelation 7. Every nation, tribe, people, and language will be there worshiping. We will be proclaiming salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Angels will be bowing down and singing amen, praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. He who sits on the throne, and this is your destiny, he will shelter you with his presence. You will never hunger again. You will never thirst again. The sun will not beat down on you. You will not encounter scorching heat because the lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He will lead you to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Through the grace of God, Moses ultimately did enter the promised land and he did it with Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and there's some kind of pain in your heart. There's some kind of regret. There's some kind of brokenness. There's some kind of sadness. I would invite you to come to the front during this final song 
and someone will be here to pray with you and you can experience the sheltering presence of God. You could experience God wiping away your tears. Amen. And the benediction is this, comes from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love one another as yourself. God bless you.